This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Machine Learning. Okay, this week I had worked on a dense layer network, and it was taking features of for determining price. So what I was looking at is features for import cars and then trying to predict price. There was 26 key features ranging from uh, engine to miles per gallon to age of the vehicle and then lots of different categories in terms of features for the for the vehicle and then predicting the price and what I was able to determine is that I really needed to include batch normalization in my model and what batch normalization does is it reduces the effect of noise and the dropout rate so you have a dropout rate which prunes your neural net makes it more efficient at the same time you don't lose any accuracy but you can uh, kill neurons in the model and so what you want to do is normalize the data so it has less of a effect on those neurons and then without compromising accuracy so it was interesting the difference between using batch normalization and non-batch normalization because the loss function seemed to be really erratic without it, and it had a, a faster convergence on the loss and then a uh, less oscillation from what I can see. So it was, a, you know, it seems like that's an important part of your, your model when you're trying to uh, keep your model from becoming inefficient. Well, and then I used uh, an activation function, so my final activation, my final layer was a dense layer with an activation of linear. And then the other neurons were RELU. And so uh, if it's positive, it's going to be one. If it's negative, it'll be zero. And it seemed to perform pretty well. When I tried tangent H, tangent H didn't work as well, and I did not try leaky RLU, but um, there were some interesting discoveries. Well, and I uh, 
I've been thinking a lot about the next piece is if I can make predictions on import cars, why can't I make predictions on the cost of used parts? So take a, a list of used parts and their features and then train the neural net against uh, spare parts and try to make predictions on price. And see, that could be a time series problem. So you could see uh, maybe there's more occurrences at higher prices in the number of transactions, and so you conclude that the prediction could go higher in the time series. Likewise, if the, if the prices were going down, uh, you would have predictions that way. Another way you can do this is just for linear regression. You could just put in a, um, a, a uh, time series, and then you could uh, uh, use the price to plot it and then try to forecast what you think the price will be in the future. So it's uh, an interesting world of numbers, but it uh, it is a, it is very interesting to do this kind of work and uh, and to try to understand what's happening in the market. I was reading this other article that was saying that the there's a shortage of computer chips. And that's affected some of the automobile industries. So they haven't been able to produce as many vehicles, and that's created uh, higher demand for the vehicles and higher prices. And that's also affected the used parts or the uh, prices because they demand to keep vehicles operational is high and so people are not replacing them with new cars they're just keeping the older vehicles and then running maintenance cycles on them that's what I do um, and so for that reason it's very interesting to keep this information and analyze trend. The biggest problem I'm having is access to data. I cannot find any data on spare parts for a vehicle. So they, I, there's one site that lists all the possible parts on a vehicle, and it's a numerous, numerous. I think there's like over a thousand parts. On a, on a vehicle and the uh, the
also, I, I guess the, the thing that the, the people were saying is that there's some profit in being able to correctly predict price. So maybe that as you're analyzing this increase in demand, you increase your price to capitalize on it. But it seems like everyone's analyzing price and capitalizing on the adjustment due to inflation. I uh, was at the hospital, and I went to eat food, and I was really amazed at how economical the prices were. Of course, the hospital reduces the the price at the at the checkout, and for two people, I was able to eat very well for $17. That would have cost $25, $30 on the outside. And most of the costs on that were my soft drinks. I bought two soft drinks, and it was almost $4 for the soft drinks. So the soft drinks were expensive. And uh, that, that's the consequence of rising inflation. And it would probably be a fallacy to believe that inflation is going to decrease over the next decade. Higher taxes, higher inflation always go hand in hand. Uh, the other day a politician came or someone who's uh, advocating for a politician came by and said that they wanted me to support one of their candidates and the reason they wanted to support that candidate is she was for lower property taxes. And I said, well, I'm Republican, not Democrat. And But I said, I'm not necessarily uh, Republican because that's the party I want to hear what she has to offer and then he told me some of her policies and I thought you know I don't know if you can necessarily vote a party line anymore politics is getting more and more confusing I think it's almost like religion. It's very confusing when you have so many people saying that they're right. Well, okay, so now looking at this uh, dense network, I'm going back to some of these machine learning classifiers and saying which perform better, XGBoost, Random Forest, Logistic Regression, and they still have their place, especially with small data. The risk, though, 
you have is overfitting of the data with small data samples. Doesn't do good with generalized problems. However, it seems like there's a lot of setup and knowledge to use deep learning. And this, like I said, this was the first time I used batch normalization. I had seen it before, but I didn't actually understand what it could do for me. And in this particular article I read, he was very good at explaining why batch normalization should be used. Well, now we've got Dolly that's out from uh, OpenAI, and it was, it can do things kind of right. Like, for example, I said, um, I gave it a name and then said, show as Superman, and it displayed the Superman outfit on the individual, and it was muscular, but the S symbol was on his back instead of his chest. And if you think about it, Superman's cape, at one time I believe they had the S symbol on the cape. I'd have to go look, but I think that it was once on the cape and on the chest, if I recall right. But it wasn't the bright yellow that you see on his chest on the cape. I think it was kind of a, a red and black. And so, you know, it it kind of got some of the features correlated correct, but it, in some ways it was kind of uh, confused, spatially confused and orientation to place was off. I did another one where I, I gave it an easier problem. I said, uh, show me a bird with blue ring, wings. And it did. It, it created a, it looked like kind of like a, a, a pelican, or not a pelican, what do you call those? Uh, a toucan. And it had uh, blue wings. So that one looked good. But then I contacted OpenAI and said, and interestingly enough, they gave me $50 in credit. And I said, well, I want to have an API so I can develop an app where people can come to my site and try this out. And uh, they said, well, we don't have an app. We don't have an API. But it seems like I brought, saw this one site where what they did was they took the code and they pass it the, the query string, the natural language processing, to the endpoint. And then they get back the data and they decode the data 
and unpackage it because it's a list of of U-T-U-I-N-T-8, uh, I believe, and display it. And they did that in Python, and I was thinking, this is great. I'll just do that same thing in Flutter. And then I'll have my Flutter app that's running on the web, and people can then try knowledge. So the useful parts of this are things that require spatial orientation. And that could be like the size of the room, the dimensions of things, how things are placed inside of the room. And they could try it out and see it visually in 3D. Well, Dolly doesn't do 3D. Dolly does 2D, but I'm sure that there will be a version that's released that's in 3D. So you have now a virtual world. The neural net interpolates the data and then tries to build a Volksol map of what it thinks is interpolating in three-dimensional space. And we do that right now with uh, LiDAR scans, where it's scanning its terrain around it, the device, and it's sending out and getting back readings or different pixel locations of objects around it. And historically, that's been very slow because of processing speed, but now as our processing speed's getting faster, we're, we're starting to be able to create these complex maps of our world around us. And that, that uh, complex mapping allows us to understand three-dimensional space. And I think as there's more of these mappings that occur, the neural nets will begin to train and learn from the 3D maps, and then they will be able to use natural language processing to process these maps. So it's interesting that Google continues to fund some of these big projects like this, and I think this one would probably be I don't know if they're receiving any funding from Microsoft. I know the Open AI Codex is getting funding from Microsoft. And I like the Open AI Codex. I use it quite a bit. And it's very helpful. But I do have this book called Mastering Python that I've been reading. And he, he highlights a lot of the new features of Python, and he demonstrates it, and I'm, and, but I'm finding it very similar to the way OpenA Codex demonstrates its code. So I'm almost thinking that at sometimes 
OpenAI codec performs at an expert level, a master level. Other times it doesn't. And you usually can tell when it doesn't because it starts throwing out a lot of gibberish or it starts repeating patterns. And I think that's one of the things about AI that in the future as you start to, it becomes more powerful and it can do more visualizations and things that the way you'll know that you're in AI is that there will be um, things that are replicated. I don't know why things replicate in AI, but they do. Like even if uh, I ask the OpenAI a question, sometimes it responds by repeating the same content over and over and over. And you're saying, wait a second, you just it just said that. Why did it say it again? And so it doesn't really have any self-reference of the things that it's saying. It's just generating out sequentially what it thinks the next word should be. And for some reason it gets caught in these circular loops where it just keeps generating out the same content. You know, I think where AI could be helpful is in big cities. Definitely uh, assistance on the navigation when you're driving. And for testing and validating ideas that you might have. Um, it wasn't really good at health. It was pretty good at economics, but it's old in economics. And it really wasn't very good in health. It kind of had, the AI has some knowledge of health, but it doesn't really talk like to, talk to you like you would listen to a doctor explain why certain symptoms could not be certain types of diseases. And for that reason, uh, it makes you wonder what the future will be with medicine and natural language processing. You know, natural language processing is a big thing right now. These transformers have really caught a lot of attention. They're generating an enormous amount of content. Our world is, is being modified uh, based on the content of these transformers and now you have transformers in 3D space or 2D space and soon will be 3D space the world around us will start to look different as machines begin to design architectures instead of square boxes you're going to see flowing circular rounded architectures with complex geometric shapes. Our interfaces on our devices are going to change as computers are able to start writing code. And they'll write lots of code really quick and you'll have rich feature, you'll have feature rich 
uh, functionality. And so for that reason, I think that uh, OpenAI will be a powerful tool and is a powerful tool already. Uh, if you like IntelliSense, you have to get on Codex, start using some of the, the features there. And one, one of the things that I find interesting is that OpenAI Codex was sponsored by Microsoft, but Microsoft did not promote C-sharp code, code generation, nor did it promote F-sharp or Java. Um, I think it can ex do things like explain the code, like a Java piece of code. It may be able to explain what the code does. And maybe that's going to be the future of documentation, is that you take your function, you put it through NLP, and it generates code description, and then you insert that into your code base. For future programmers to be able to maintain your code. But from the same point of view, you can go the opposite direction. You can give it natural language processing descriptions, and it will attempt to write the code. Well, I mean, that, those are things that are kind of interesting. Well, um, you know, sometimes you have to stop and relax. I'm going to be talking about solar proton ejection, coronal mass ejection. And what's interesting is the sun, it seems to be short circuit. It seems to short circuit. Those, those sunspots have an anoid, cathoid, property. So once one solar flare, uh, solar